Hello everyone, this is Katya and you are listening to The Slavic Connection. Today, Lara had the great pleasure of sitting down with none other than my mother, Dr. Susan Cray. Lara, could you tell us what y'all talked about today? I'm gonna be honest, I've never been more excited to be on a podcast to get to interview your mom. That's amazing. She's a professor of anthropology at George Mason University's Department of Environmental Science and Policy. We've had a really great discussion about you know climate change occurring around the world, specifically in indigenous communities. We also touched a little bit on the anthropology which is a documentary that you're in, Katya. In a nutshell, it was Bring Your Parent to Work Day here at the Slava Connection. Go ahead and take a listen. You're listening to the Slava Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Hi, Dr. Crate. Welcome to the podcast. We're very excited to have you here today. Thanks for inviting me. All right, well, let's get right into it. You are a professor of anthropology at George Mason. Um, I know you do a little bit of research uh, concerning indigenous communities in Siberia. Um, let's just kind of get into that. Uh, what got you into your research? What have you been doing recently? Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the million dollar question that people always ask when they find out I do research in northeastern Siberia is how did you get there? <laughs> it's a long story. I'll try to make it as brief as possible. In the 1980s, I was working as a singer and storyteller, and I was fascinated by Russian stories and songs, and the opportunity came up at the end of the 80s to travel there. There were lots of Bridges for Peace and other types of events going on in the era of perestroika and glasnost and the opening up of the former Soviet Union, of the Soviet Union at that time, of course. Uh, So... I figured I would go and check it off my list of places I wanted to see, but I was bitten by the bug. I came back with a thirst to learn the language. I went back that very summer and took a an immersive Russian language course in Zaporozhye in Ukraine. And then in there somewhere, I learned about Lake Baikal in Siberia. My undergraduate degree uh, was in environmental studies, and I was fascinated when I heard about Baikal. I found a way to get there the next year, and we were in Ulan-Ude for a while. I met an ethnologist who worked specifically on Buryat culture, Buryat herself, and asked if I could come study. I was fascinated with knowing the songs and stories about the lake that Buryat had, and she invited me to Tuva the next summer where we traveled for a month, uh, the length and breadth of Tuva, recording uh, throat singers and uh, juice harp players and ballad singing, etc. Then we returned to Baikal to the Selinga region uh, near Ulanude and also did some recording out in the field there uh, with elders. And then and it was about that same time that David Brower was working uh, on Lake Baikal. He came over from the States. Uh, he was with Sierra Club, and at that time, um, he was very interested in making Baikal a UNESCO heritage site. Mm-hmm. And so he came over with a group, and I worked as an interpreter for his group and got involved in that aspect of the work that was going on. Somewhere in here, I received a telegram from a colleague I had met in Moscow inviting me up to the Saha Republic for the week-long Jews Harp Festival. I was hesitant at first, but I decided why not, and it was in the 
week, in the middle of that week, that we were sent out to uh, various regions to celebrate this festival that the Saha celebrate around the summer solstice. And I didn't mention this at first, but I was at that time working on a master's in folklore at UNC Chapel Hill, and I was interested in studying a festival, um, and I was looking in many of the festivals that I participated in in Tuva and Buryatia and Mongolia for that sacred aspect of mm -hmm. them. And I found none in the southern part of Siberia, but there was something in the in the Saha festival. So the next year I came back to uh, study it for my master's uh, research. And it was in the process of that that I met Katie's dad and... Uh, I came back the next year to learn the Saha language, which is a Turkic language. And in the process of that uh, language study, I also learned about the environmental issues that were largely due to the diamond exploitation in the Soviet period. And because of my environmental background, I was interested in uh, putting together an environmental education initiative I received a two-year grant from the new initiative in the Soviet Union that the MacArthur Foundation had just established, and we set up such a an initiative. Uh, two years later, we were more focused. I got another grant from them, uh, focused more on the the, the uh, policy implications of these new mines they were opening that were fairly adjacent to settlements, uh, and we were very actively involved in. Uh, interviewing people who had witnessed the earlier environmental issues associated with diamond mining, thinking that we'd be able to create, uh, edit, edit it into a video and be able to educate the communities along the river mm -hmm. and have them, you know, s speak out and stop everything, right? I'm very naive. You know, I came from the United States where the idea of that is, is you know, at least exists. Yeah. Uh, not so there. So long story short, uh, the summer that we had finished up this this video, a few weeks after I left the village, the KGB came around looking for me. Wow. And Katie was uh, a reality at the time. And it was, uh, I decided that I should study something a little more neutral uh, because I wanted my family to be able to travel freely back and forth. And so I decided to study a question that had always intrigued me, which was, you know, where are people getting all the food they're feeding themselves with? We know, uh, for example, you go into a, a, a store at that time in the 90s, and there was nothing there but uh, various kinds of vodka, cigarettes, candy, vinegar, oil, nothing really to eat. <laughs> Not that typical Slavic pantry. Yeah. But you'd go into somebody's house and in five minutes the table was laden. Sure. With amazing food. So I did a, um, I worked in two villages uh, doing pretty much surveying 30% of all the households to know how they transitioned from the dissolution of the state farm in 1991 to now um, and basically f found that they had developed a household-level food production system, which I called cows and kin, because instead of every house having a cow barn behind it and taking care of their own cows, they actually 
worked within a kin network of households mm-hmm. where uh, the basic model was that an elder, the elderly household would do the daily cow care and supply the products to the other households, which were often their children, children's households, and then those children households would do the heavy summer work of harvesting you know, two tons of hay per cow for the winter. Uh, so there was this, basically, it was not a contractual reciprocity. Mm-hmm. It was something that they <clears throat> just worked that way. Towards the end of that project, um, you know, and, and and of course, at the time, I was thinking, this is great. They're doing a local food thing. Uh, and it's very sustainable, right? Low carbon footprint, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, locally sourced. <laughs> right, locally sourced and... Then I overheard people talking about needing to get rid of the cows and paving the streets. And I understood that that was partly in due to the influx of Western soap operas that many people were reading or were watching fairly regularly, which portrayed, you know, independently wealthy lifestyles uh, with no cows and paved roads. Sure. Among other things. So uh, the next... A couple of years later, I initiated a sustainability, uh, defining sustainability on a local level. So how do people themselves, how do these people in these villages themselves see their transition into a robust future? Mm-hmm. And it was towards the end. So after doing focus groups and in-depth interviews, semi-structured interviews in the first part of the project, I would then take the findings from those qualitative methods um, and test them in a quantitative survey across a random sample of the communities. And the very last question in that survey was, is there anything I have not asked you about that you want to tell me about? Mm-hmm. And uh, 90% of the people responded to that by saying something about the weather or the climate. So wow. why are the winters not as cold? Why are the summers not as hot? Why is the rain at the wrong time? Why are there new birds and animals that we've never seen before, et cetera. So I knew in my own environmental background that this, and my own activism in the climate change issue, that these were signs of the local effects of climate change. Uh, I didn't use that term, though. I just asked if uh, they were interested in doing a fuller project. But the most important part for me as an anthropologist was that after we realized uh, that response to the last question on the survey, we decided to take advantage of the time we had left in the field, and we went out and interviewed 33 elders to Mm -hmm. ask them about these changes, uh, justifying interviewing elders because they'd seen the most annual cycles of weather and climate. And 10 of the 33 elders talked about how the bull of winter hadn't arrived. And what is that exactly? Well, the Bull of Winter is a way that they have of explaining a period in the winter where there's no snow. There's a just a very, it's about minus 60, temperatures stay at about minus 60, and it's very cold and it's too cold and dry to snow. And with the changes, the global changes, this winter has started not to be like that. And so... Basically, the way they talk about the Bull of Winter, uh, September is when the snow begins to fall. By early December, it becomes that 
time when it's too cold and dry to snow, the bull has arrived. Mm -hmm. And then by mid to late February, as that cold lifts up a little, they understand that one of the horns of the bull falls off. A few weeks later, another horn falls off. And then as that cold really lifts and it starts to snow again, the bull's head falls off and spring has arrived. Okay. So for me as an anthropologist, it was one of those moments uh, where, you know, sort of an epiphany in a way, because I realized, so now how do people understand the bull of winter? Yeah. This is, uh, it's gone extinct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or w- w- this knowledge that they've passed on as a way of understanding this annual cycle no longer is something uh, that they use to understand the annual cycle, but rather to talk about how the annual cycle used to be. Right. So long story short, I started really taking seriously the need to investigate the cultural implications of climate change. Mm -hmm. We know we have a lot of information about the physical uh, implications of climate change, but we don't have much at that time about the cultural implications. So I started, uh, well, I basically agreed, the communities agreed that they wanted me to work with them on another full project on this. And I started to speak with other colleagues who were in the anthropology who were uh, also actually finding themselves uh, with the, in their field, and it's not just in the Arctic, but in many places across the planet where these signs of the local signs of climate change were actually coming into their research. Mm. People either talking about them, they themselves realizing that things were changing, et cetera. So we organized some big panels in the annual anthropology conference and the applied anthropology conference. And out of that came the edited volume in 2009, Anthropology and Climate Change from Encounters to Actions, which kind of spanned lots of different uh, world areas where anthropologists like myself were working and coming upon climate change in their research, but also other areas of uh, public and private sector anthropology work where these issues were also coming up. Then we also, seven years later, published another volume, uh, Anthropology and Climate Change from Actions to Transformations, which took it to the next level as it is a rapidly expanding field. Many people in the first book were in the second, but they could be in the second if they updated it in terms of how their work had changed in that seven-year period. The other thing that happened around this time is In 2008, I got a call from a documentary film company asking me if I'd be in a documentary on climate change, that my my program officer at NSF in Arctic Social Science had given my name to them as somebody who does research on climate change. And at first I was hesitant, just not wanting, you know, all these cameras coming into my research and messing it up and interfering with human subjects, protocols, etc., But I realized that there's a lot of information out there. Most of it is scientific about climate change, which is far too abstract for the majority of people to even grasp what's going on. 
the best way to bring climate change into people's lives is by humanizing it and narratives and stories about it. And it's possible that maybe if we showed people in different parts of the world who were actually in the throes of climate change right now, more people would understand. So I decided that that would be uh, a worthwhile venture. Sure, yeah. So to fill in a little bit of background information there, uh, the documentary you're talking about is called The Anthropologist. Uh, came out in 2016, um, and there's sort of a parallel story going on there between Margaret Mead, who was a huge figure in anthropology, and her daughter, Mary Catherine Bateson. At the same time, though, it follows you and uh, Slava Connection's very own Katya as you travel to a lot of different areas and sort of end up connecting with a lot of communities and putting a, a face like a touching on the human side of, of climate change, which I thought was very, very impactful. Like we, we talked about this a little bit off mic, but with climate change, you find that there's a lot of, you know, graphs and numbers and it all feels a little bit far away sometimes to the public of just like, oh, well, yeah, sure, glaciers are melting, but this doesn't affect me. And you kind of took these cameras, took these crews with you and had them follow you to these areas where you can actually see the change happening. And it wasn't just in, um, you know, indigenous villages. You also went to a lot of other areas as well, correct? Well, we did. I, we went to basically after the film crew came and shot my research in northeastern Siberia. They said, uh, well, okay, so two more places you need to suggest two more places where this is an issue and where you've not been before. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, we've done the Arctic story, the high latitude story. We need to do the near sea level story. Right with sea level rise, and we need to do the glacial melt story. Mm -hmm. And so we went to Kiribati, which is one of the island nations in the South Pacific, and we went to the Peruvian Andes, the second largest glacial mass next to the Himalayas. And it was, um, it was in Siberia, actually, that they, quote unquote, discovered Katie. I mean, they knew I had a daughter, but I think it was when they came to Siberia, they realized that her father was from there. So she herself had a huge uh, investment in this issue in terms of her own personal understanding and sure. her own personal connection to these people. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she was you know, a young person growing up outside of metropolitan D.C., mm -hmm. uh, they decided that they wanted to ask about uh, her also playing a substantial role in this and largely because it would bring in young people in yeah. terms of watching it. And so we went through some pretty intensive uh, editing of a memorandum of understanding because I wanted her to be as protected as she could be in terms of what went up on the screen. Of course. Young people aren't very nice these days. Or, you know, high school students. The internet, <laughs> yeah. The bullying that goes on. So, uh, but it, so it worked out. I mean, she was 13. She was very excited and happy about it. And um, she had a little bit of a trouble with it a few years later as she became more more self-aware, but uh, she tells me she's feeling uh, good about it now. I think she's taken more of an attitude of, you know, if in fact this serves this larger purpose, if there is this, uh, if we're able to contribute something to helping people understand this, this critical issue, then that's okay. 
yeah. I can look a little silly in some places. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad that she's kind of made her peace with it a little bit because I think, you know, having that extra layer of, of humanity of just like a personal connection with the audience, it's even having like a crew go somewhere and witness this, having that extra little addition of, you know, other people witnessing this, like adding a protagonist to the story, um, I think is really important. And, you know, it documents not only like it, the way uh, if I was reading a couple of reviews about the the documentary, they frame it in a way that it's not just, you know, witnessing the change that's occurring, you know, in the climate, in our environment, but also it was the change in Katie and her, her changing of her opinion, like as she's growing up. Um, and I think that all kind of adds to like a really powerful message of not, you know, bringing it home rather, like putting sure. the face to, to climate change. And that it's not simple. Exactly. It's complex. Yeah. And the other thing I like about the film is that it also communicates what anthropologists do. Mm -hmm. I think there's, I, I, I know that so many times I've told somebody I'm an anthropologist and they say, oh, where do you dig? <laughs> yeah, and what's so that, I, well, that's archaeology. It's one of the four <laughs> fields of anthropology. So, you know, I kind of go into this whole thing about how it's, it's a huge area, sure. of course, because it's about humans yeah. and we're kind of everywhere. So, um, yeah. And the... I think that I think the the film has had an effect, and I'm excited about that. Uh, the other project I've been working on, which really literally just wrapped up um, this week, was this big IPCC report. Right. Uh, so the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which has existed since 1988 as an effort to uh, communicate the most update uh, information, scientific information about global change. Um, in between the fifth and the sixth assessment, which is where we are now, they proposed these three special reports. The 1.5 report came out last fall. The land report came out in August of this year. And then this is the uh, special report on the ocean and climate and cryosphere and a changing climate, the cryosphere being all the frozen parts of the earth. Mm -hmm. So it contributed to the chapter that frames the rest of it, the chapter one, which kind of sets out how all these other chapters are going to work. And my area that I kind of headed up, although I worked in other parts of chapter one, was focused on knowledge systems. Okay. So communicating a lot of what we've been talking about, you mm -hmm. know, the need to understand it through people's views, through right. how they see the world and mm -hmm. how they understand how the world works. Yeah, that's very relevant, especially right now. It couldn't be more relevant, really. Yeah. Um, like this past week, we had the uh, the big climate change protests, and um, I think getting even more information out there and making it more, I wouldn't say bite sized, but more like applicable to more people. I think that yeah, that's that's very exciting. That's not, that's something you're working on. And I'm also the last thing that I'll I'll mention as we come to a close here is that I'm a couple years ago I received a British Museum fellowship. And I'm working on a book for that, which in many ways is very comprehensive mm -hmm. ethnography. If I started working there in 91, that means almost 30 years I've been working in these communities. So doing what I'm calling an interdisciplinary longitudinal ethnography mm -hmm. to bring in a real discussion of change over time, the historical, cultural, economic, et cetera, change, but in the context of this unprecedented change in the Earth's climate and the way that it's affecting these communities in northeastern Siberia. All right, well, we'll definitely have to keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much for coming in today, leading us on this really relevant, important discussion um, here on our podcast, and we hope to have you back again soon. Great. I'd love to come. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. 
The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.